My name is Melissa Hoffman. I'm the Assistant Director of Public Health at the Medical Society of the State of New York. I'm joined today by Dr. Bill Valenti, internist and infectious diseases specialist practicing in Rochester, New York. He's also chair of NISI's Infectious Diseases Committee. We are here today to talk about respiratory viruses with a particular focus on influenza, RSV, and COVID. I will pose a series of questions for Dr. Valenti surrounding the current season of flu, RSV, and the ongoing spread of COVID. We will focus on vaccine statistics, including hesitancy and fatigue, numbers of cases, and the burdens these respiratory viruses are putting on an already stressed healthcare system. Moving on to my first question. Owing to an earlier than usual uptick in both flu and RSV cases, and the ongoing spread of COVID for the past four years, the term triple-demic was coined in 2022-23. Would you describe the current 2023-24 flu and RSV season, along with COVID, as comparable to the 2022-23 season, or do you think it's been different this year? Well, thanks, Melissa. And first of all, respiratory viruses are unpredictable, and the pattern often varies from year to year. The consistent pattern is that RSV appears earlier, and when it falls off, influenza starts. Usually RSV starts around uh, the Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, Hanukkah time, and then falls off, and influenza picks up. Now, the difference in the past several years has been the presence of COVID that hasn't really disrupted this pattern, but is now a new player, hence the term triple-demic. And the other thing that we don't understand clearly yet is whether or not COVID will influence this previous pattern of RSV comes first, falls off, and then influenza starts. So we're going to have to keep an eye out. And there are a lot of things that determine that, that contribute to that pattern, especially with COVID, which hasn't exactly gone away. There's always a low level of COVID being transmitted. It seems to peak in the cold weather months, but it also, at least at this point, appears to be something that is transmitted year-round. We're going to move on and talk about vaccination. And statistics show that the numbers of recipients for vaccines for each of these respiratory viruses are low this year. The RSV vaccine was newly introduced in 2023. Can you please describe this vaccine and who should get it? RSV vaccine, you're correct, is newly introduced in 2023-24, but research on an RSV vaccine has been going on for at least 60 years, since the 1960s. And we've known that this is a problem in both children under two years of age and also in older adults. So the vaccine then is available, and then there are three that are currently available. They are protein-based vaccines, and they are not mRNA vaccines. So they uh, are based instead on what's called the F protein that is designed to stimulate immunity to people uh, against RSV. And 
the way it's given is clinical trials show that it's effective in adults age 60 and older who are the highest risk people in the adult population for RSV and also to take care of kids who are two years of age and under. The current plan is to vaccinate mothers during pregnancy, during the last trimester of pregnancy, to cover that baby for at least the first six months and hopefully longer. So those two groups of people are prime candidates for this new, newly introduced RSV vaccine. But again, our RSV vaccine research has been going on since the 1960s. And Dr. Valenti, do you know any statistics or numbers? Have pregnant women been, have they been getting the shot? The numbers appear to be sluggish, with about 20% or so of vaccine candidates actually being vaccinated with this RSV vaccine. So we have some work to do in terms of understanding it, learning about it, being able to talk about it, and then being able to give information to patients that is understandable and promotes vaccine uptake. I think this is to be expected with a newly introduced vaccine, that it just takes a little time for it to get legs. But this is a good time for us as physicians and healthcare providers to begin to get the message out to patients. Absolutely. And What are the other preventive measures for RSV? Who should be really concerned about getting it? Well, all of us are fair game for RSV because it's transmitted by uh, droplets. There is some aerosol uh, transmission. So the way you mitigate that is what we do for other respiratory viruses, which is hand washing or sanitizing hands, especially after being in high-touch areas or areas where there are large numbers of people, at least do the hand sanitizing as a part of that. I think distancing still plays a role, as does masking. So all of those things can help reduce the risk of infection for those vulnerable people. And the vulnerable people are kids under two years of age who are prime candidates for hospitalization, as are adults age 60 and older. And if anything, the RSV vaccine, this newly introduced vaccine, has brought RSV in adults into our consciousness here. Because previously, RSV had been thought of as pretty much a childhood illness, but it's also very much a disease of adults and has a high rate of hospitalization and some death in people over age 60. It does feel like something that has been newly brought to the spotlight and it's something we need to disseminate more information about. So that's one of the reasons we're having this talk today. Now we're going to move on to flu. And flu vaccines are developed based on the flu season in the southern hemisphere and efficacy can vary. Is the current flu vaccine more or less effective than in previous years, do you think? I have good news for the 2023-24 flu season, and that is the vaccine seems to be a good match, that it covers the major H3N2 strain that is circulating in uh, the United States and Europe. So it was a uh, good match. Reports are showing that the number of flu vaccine recipients this year 
has gone down. Do you have any hypothesis as to why this may have happened? Well, I think the COVID pandemic, the push for a vaccine, restrictions, etc., has brought vaccines into our consciousness in a different way. And there is some vaccine skepticism out there, sure. And I think that that plus what we often call a vaccine fatigue, people just get tired of what they perceive to be these health warnings that are a part of our messaging that they either hold off or try and skip it. So the challenge then to us as healthcare workers is to try and get the word out in terms of not only vaccine safety, because we do have 60 years of experience with influenza vaccine, but also the effectiveness of it and the way of preventing disease in ourselves as individuals, but also in a community sense. Thank you, Dr. Valenti. And going into this whole vaccine fatigue, I know one of the leading drivers of vaccine fatigue is annual boosters. I know you've mentioned a number of times that a universal flu vaccine is in development, and this would reduce or eliminate the need for annual flu shots. Can you elaborate more on that? The universal flu vaccine has been talked about for a long time. It's now in clinical trials. And the idea is that if you use the correct part of the influenza virus to make vaccine, that you can stimulate immunity that is longer lasting. In other words, the universal flu vaccine overcomes the what we call antigenic shift or drift, the uh, genetic changes that happen with flu from one season to another. And that universal flu vaccine can overcome that because of the way it's designed. It's not available yet because it's still in clinical trials, but it's certainly, it's moving along. Okay, and is there anything else you wanted to add about either flu or RSV since they are seasonal, unlike COVID? Right. I think, the, the again, the challenge to us as physicians is we want to get the word out. The other opportunity is for us to be role models here. And I remind patients that I am up to date with all my vaccines. I received RSV and flu vaccine the same day and didn't really have much trouble with it. I had a little bit of a sore arm for a day, but it didn't keep me from doing any of my usual activities. In other words, in addition to giving people an educational message, we can also be a role model and say, I've done it myself. Leading by example is always a great way to approach these things. Now we're going to move on to COVID. And recently in a presentation, you mentioned that COVID is beginning to act like an endemic disease. What does this mean? Well, an endemic disease is one that establishes itself as more or less routine and something that is always circulating, always out there. And if you can't eradicate something, and I think there were some early hopes with COVID that we might do that, but when you can't really eradicate things, and there's always a low level of circulation, viruses become endemic, become a part of our lives. Kind of like flu. Yes, like flu. Except for not seasonal. 
Will updates on COVID vaccines be an annual thing like a flu shot, do you think? Or do you think it'll be more frequent, like twice a year? With COVID, we're going to a vaccine that has a, a longer life and avoids frequent boosters. So I think eventually with the right kind of vaccine development, that we could probably get uh, an annual or, or uh, every other year update that would cover uh, most of this. The problem with COVID is that we're only, what, three or four years into this pandemic and still have a lot to learn in terms of how this virus is going to behave. And right now, it is not not behaving like a seasonal virus, that there's this low level of activity, transmission, new infection happening constantly with peaks during the cold weather months as a part of the winter respiratory season. So it may become a seasonal virus if enough people develop uh, immunity and keep up with vaccines. The thinking is that there is a way to achieve that, but it takes careful public health planning, good messaging, and participation from all of us in terms of trying to get to that point. Couldn't agree more. You also recently described that there's a startlingly low number of New Yorkers who have received the most recent monovalent COVID vaccine. What are your recommendations to improve them in these numbers? Well, it's under 20% of people in New York State overall who've been vaccinated with the new COVID vaccine that was introduced in September 2023. So we have some work to do in terms of getting the message out there in terms of vaccine safety and vaccine as a public health measure. So in some ways, we need to rebuild trust with groups of people who may be hesitant or skeptic about vaccines and rely on the evidence presented in a simple, uncomplicated way, be a role model in terms of being vaccinated ourselves, and just continue to work at this because it's important not only for our individual health, but for community health as well. How do you think the low number of individuals having gotten the vaccine, do you think this has contributed to COVID spread and the evolution of new variants? Well, new variants are part of what most uh, viruses do. The interesting thing about COVID is that it does evolve rather quickly and changes with what we call uh, subvariants. Right now we're dealing with Omicron as the major family member, but a number of its what offspring are continuing to circulate. So, Is there a direct correlation in vaccination rates and new variants of COVID? Well, good question. And under vaccination can contribute to development of these mutations or variants. Because what happens is something called viral escape. In other words, the virus kind of outsmarts the immune system, because there are still places for it to go with large numbers of unimmunized people, unvaccinated people, or people who 
are not up to date with their vaccines. So the virus takes advantage of this. It's called immune escape and can spread to those people who are either not vaccinated, under vaccinated, or whose immunity is waning because of vaccine not being up to date. What we're trying to do here is get ahead of the virus. I know previous infection also provides some immunity. What's the comparable equation between vaccination and infection? Well, the immunity from infection probably is strongest for about four, maybe six months. Vaccine will last longer. The combination of infection plus vaccine has been shown to be pretty good at either keeping infection at bay, preventing infection, or reducing the severity of infection. That this vaccine does a wonderful job of keeping people out of the hospital and preventing death. The other thing that it does is that it may prevent long COVID. That in people who have been vaccinated up to date, who get a COVID infection, have a lower rate of long COVID symptoms than those who are not vaccinated or not up to date. So the vaccine has its advantages, certainly. And I think it's important for us to tell that to people, tell that to our patients and let them know what we're talking about here. I'm happy you brought up long COVID. I was thinking the same thing. And I always encourage any friends that are hesitant to get the shot that long COVID is a disability. And there's so little known about it that such a great impact on daily life that just for that fact alone, everyone should be up to date on their shots, at least in my opinion. Yeah, well, as a minimum, you know, it's a nuisance, but in a lot of people, these symptoms can last six months or longer and be disabling. It changes your life. So we should take steps to prevent that. I'm going to move on to the next question, and I just really am curious if the newer COVID variants, if they're becoming demonstratively less harmful and deadly. Well, that's a uh, a good question, and speaks to how respiratory viruses are so unpredictable. And what happens with variants is not always predictable. In fact, some of them, while they may be more infectious and infect larger numbers of people, cause less severe disease. But then there are others that are the converse in terms of not being very transmissible, but also cause a more severe illness. So there isn't a, uh, an established pattern yet. And I think it continues to speak to trying to get as many people vaccinated and immune as possible and develop immunity for the longest period of time to begin to either try and slow virus spread. I was going to say stop it, but I think we're not going to be able to stop virus spread completely, not with our current technology, but we can certainly slow it down. That would be a great achievement if we're able to do that. We're going to move on just to talk a little bit more about vaccine fatigue. This is actually a new term for me, and it relates to fatigue from a seemingly continual an ongoing need to receive boosters or new vaccines. Do you think that vaccine fatigue is related or leads to vaccine hesitancy? I think it may be uh, 
stronger version of vaccine hesitancy because with the right information, vaccine hesitant people, at least significant numbers of them, will accept vaccine. But vaccine fatigue or even anti-vax is a, taking a stronger position on vaccination. And that's where the challenge lies because, I mean, we're all here to, um, to do a good job and want to know, well, talk to me about your experience so that I can give you the best scientific information possible so that you make the right decision. In the end, it's the patient's decision. But I also believe that as physicians, we have a duty to recommend in terms as strong as possible that people be vaccinated for the good of the community, but they're also their own individual good health. Do you think there's going to be ramifications for the low numbers? Do you think we're going to see more triple-demic years if people continue to not go to their doctors or not go to the clinic and get these shots? I think under-vaccination can contribute to COVID staying this constant endemic virus transmitted year-round. In order to try and shift it to the more seasonal variety, we need to have larger numbers of people uh, vaccinated in anticipation of these uh, respiratory seasons. So the timing is important. Vaccination itself is important, giving people information and getting ready. Having it having vaccine accessible in the office, consider doing more than one vaccine at a time so that people who have transportation issues can get as much of what they need in one visit as possible, those kinds of things. I mean, there's educational kinds of, of strategies, but then there's also life on the ground that says, well, what are we going to do to help people get vaccinated right now? So we need to make sure the office is equipped with the right kind of vaccine products to get it done when the patient's in the office rather than having them come back or go to the health department. That is definitely something to think about. My colleagues in, in smaller offices is that vaccine procurement, the purchasing kinds of things can get complicated with smaller buyers, whereas larger high volume uh, supermarket or health center buyers tend to get their deliveries a little bit faster and easier. So there are there are challenges. And the other is the is kind of equalizing the vaccine distribution network so that uh, smaller places uh, are recognized as being just as important in this as larger institutions or pharmacies for community pharmacies, for example, in terms of vaccine distribution mm -hmm. and getting more people vaccinated and changing those numbers. So access is important and we have some work to do with that too. New York State has many rural and remote areas and it adds a whole other complication to yeah. getting vaccines to people. It has to be addressed, it has to be recognized and it has to be remembered. Mm -hmm. um, a yearly basis, I guess. But I think we've covered the implications of low numbers of shots in arms. And how do you think physicians can improve the number of patients receiving vaccines, flu, RSV, and COVID? Well, the improvement pieces are, are many. There's the 
vaccine distribution. In other words, trying to overcome some of those challenges by ordering early or ordering in group purchasing arrangements, those kinds of things, so that access is there. Trying to do multiple vaccines on the same visit so that people don't have to come back to the office, especially if there are weather or other transportation issues, those kinds of things. So there's the vaccine access issue. As a health system, we need to ensure equity so that cost isn't a barrier, recognize that that can be a barrier. We want to overcome that. And the other part is, as physicians, for us to be familiar with the evidence that speaks to vaccine safety and also how effective are these vaccines. In other words, what do they do? What is it that vaccines do? And all right, they don't necessarily prevent all infections. They prevent some, but they do. And we know this with four years of experience now. They do indeed decrease the intensity of that illness, that it's a much milder illness and less likely to involve hospitalization or death if people are up to date with vaccines. Because, you know, in the end, we're the the trusted source of information, that it's really up to us. Thank you, Dr. Valenti. Final question, and it's not really a question, it's just, do you have any parting words of wisdom on best practices for increasing the number of eligible patients who receive vaccines for flu, RSV, Mm -hmm. and COVID? Well, one of the things that comes to mind is developing a system so that when the patient makes the appointment to remind them that the nurse will talk to you about your vaccine update while you're here to prepare the patient for the discussion. Nurse comes into the room to do the uh, pre-visit, if that's the way it's set up, or not necessarily, it may not be the nurse, maybe a patient care assistant or other staff member to inquire, well, when were you vaccinated with RSV, flu, or COVID to update that in the medical record so that when the provider comes in, we have at least some of the information that's been gathered that helps direct the discussion. So setting up a a system, and I realize that there are all kinds of other things that we are obligated to do in terms of asking health-related information. And that involves everything from updating insurance to colonoscopies. But especially during this respiratory season, to begin to think about what's the system of care in place that is likely to get the most people vaccinated? What do I need to do? And it'll be different for every office, but at least ask the question. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Valenti. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this podcast. Please go to the MISNI CME website if you want to see more of Dr. Valenti's infinite wisdom on respiratory viruses and many other emergency preparedness modules.